0: One was a young boy um, who was identified fairly late with SMA um, and his mobility was primarily through his wheelchair and he was clearly involved in what was going on, but there are limits to what he was able to do because of his mobility. And his sister, um, about a three-year-old was running around and jumping up on the stage and doing cartwheels and stuff. And she had been identified earlier than her brother and had received treatment right from the beginning. And I think when you, when you see that kind of, picture in your mind, you can see why the committee voted pretty much unanimously to say that yes, if we can identify a condition and we can guarantee that every child in our state will get the treatment they need, then this is pretty straightforward. We should be doing this. Um, And I think it's the presence of families in those kinds of situations that help us understand that this is Yes, it's arcane policy, and yes, it's difficult research, and, and yes, there are thorny questions about how best to do things and pay for stuff and, and meet all our obligations, but when you see kids, it really helps you understand that this is exactly why we're doing what we're doing, um, and it's really powerful.
1: We are excited to welcome Dr. Jeffrey Abrasco to the MBS-TN New Bar Screening Spotlight today. Dr. Brosko will share moving stories from his lifetime of experiences caring for children and families as a clinician who specializes in developmental behavior pediatrics. Dr. Brosko has both an MD and PhD degree from the University of Pennsylvania, and he serves as the Florida Title V Director for Children and Youth with Special Healthcare Needs. Dr. Brosco has written numerous articles on the ethical, legal, social implication of newborn screening. And along with Diane Paul, he authored a book called The PKU Paradox, A Short History of a Genetic Disease. In 2019, Dr. Brosko was awarded the Maternal and Child Health Bureau Director Award for his contribution to the health of infants, mothers, children, adolescents, and children with special health care needs across the United States. Listen along with us as Dr. Brosko discuss a wide range of topics, including the use of genomics to help end the diagnostic odyssey for families. Hello, this is the Newborn Screening Spotlight. This podcast is about the advancement of rare disease research, told by health professionals, researchers, parents, and advocates. This podcast is for you to learn how Newborn Screening Research saves the lives of babies every day through the discovery of new technology and treatment. You will hear stories from experts who treat babies, the families who care for them, and the researchers who make it all happen.
2: We are your co-hosts. I am Dr. Tee Chan. And I'm Dr. Amy Brower. We're from the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, also known as the mds Our work is supported by one of the institutes at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, called the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, also known as NICHD. Dr. Chan and I are from the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, also known as ACMG, and ACMG leads the MBS-TRN. Screening babies saves lives every day, and research advances newborn screening by developing new technologies to screen, diagnose, and treat. MBSTRN helps accelerate research by creating tools, resources, and expertise for researchers, doctors, families, patients, and advocates. To learn how you can help
1: advance newborn screening research, advocate for rare disease screening and treatment, and learn about important discovery, become a member of the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network by visiting our website at www.mbstrn.org. Hello, Dr. Abrasco. Thank you so much for joining us today on our podcast. We're so delighted to have you join us. You are a pediatrician with a specialty in developmental behavioral pediatric and also currently the state of Florida Title V director for children and youth with special health care needs. How did you get involved with newborn screening research?
0: Well, first of all, thank you, Key and and Amy. It's great to to join you guys today, and I'm excited to talk about newborn screening and research. It's one of my favorite topics. Um, So there are a few things you pointed out there. One is that I'm a developmental behavioral pediatrician, so I'm a clinician, and I actually even do general pediatrics some days of the week. So I, I see children who have complex medical conditions, some of which are related to newborn screening, and I get to know their families pretty well. So that part of my life for the last 30 years has been doing clinical work. And you also mentioned Title V which um, for, for listeners who don't know about it, uh, the Maternal Child Health Bureau, which is part of the federal government, HRSA, provides money to each state to try to make sure that, that mothers and children and families are healthy. Um, and part of the funds is called a block grant and states get 10 million or 5 million or whatever the size of their state is. Part of that money goes to children and youth with special care needs. So that's about the, you know the 20% or so of children who need more medical care than usual. And I'm the Title V Director for Children and Youth with Special Health Care Needs in the state of Florida, which means we have a small team and we work with families and and physicians and stakeholders across the state to say what are the main issues for children and youth with special health care needs and what are the things we can do to help um, make their lives better. And we often work with our state newborn screening program. We're closely related, obviously, because children identified by newborn screening end up having special health care needs and end up you know, being part of our larger programs. So this is the, kind of the two parts of my life, one which is being a clinician and the other is thinking about systems of care. Um, but you asked about research and my research, I'm trained as a historian and think a lot about health policy and, and ethics. And my start in newborn screening was just one of those lucky things. It was a lark. Um, This was back about 15 years ago, and some listeners may remember that there were concerns, as there are now, about false positives in newborn screening. And what happens if you treat someone with a false positive? Are there any harms that may come? And there were a couple of folks 15 years ago so who were saying that, look, PKU, back in the 1960s, there are all these children who had false positives and were identified, and they were put on the diet, and there was great harm, and some of them died. Um, And that was sort of one of the arguments against expanding newborn screening. Again, this is about 15 years ago. Um, And I happened to, in the halls, because I'm at the University of Miami, run into Dr. Rodney Howell. So many listeners will know he's, in some ways, the, the, the father of expanded newborn screening in the United States. And I said, oh, Dr. Howell, I saw that this is a bit of controversy. And as a historian, this is actually something we could answer. We could go back and look at the records in the 1960s and find out, was, was it true? Were there many children who had false positives, were treated, and, and had bad outcomes? Um, and he said, that sounds great. And we worked out a, a, an arrangement, and I had a medical student and a graduate student, and we poured through a lot of the literature in the 1960s. And we even did some oral histories and interviews, um, looked a lot of the international literature. And what we found was only two cases um, where there was a false positive that led to a poor outcome and nothing like the thousands that people had been talking about. And that ended up being the start of my work in newborn screening. That was about 15 years ago.
1: What a wonderful story. And where you are now is amazing in the sense of like you have written numerous articles on the ethical, legal, social implication of newborn screening. In one of your articles, you mentioned that whole and exome sequencing can add medical insight for families in a diagnostic odyssey. And in some cases, families are still on a therapeutic odyssey. Here, you propose a family-centered approach to care in the genomic era. Could you elaborate to our listener on what this could be?
0: Sure. I think in some ways, this is one of the fundamental questions we face in newborn screening. You know, if you think about the initial conditions like PKU and hypothyroidism, those are the sorts of things that, you know, every parent would agree that if you had a child with those conditions, you're going to do treatment, right? That's kind of straightforward. And what we've seen over the last decade is more and more conditions where it's not so clear exactly what the condition is. It's hard to know what's truly a problem, what's not. And the interventions often have lots of side effects and potential harms. And so it gets a lot trickier to know what the right things to do are. And especially when you talk about screening using genomic um, processes where there's a huge amount of information that would then be available to a family some of which is really useful but mostly in the sense of knowing what's going on with their child um, but not necessarily leading to a specific therapeutic intervention so there's been this debate about well how much how important is information and are we moving in the newborn screening paradigm are we moving away from the idea of, well, if this is PKU, this is hypothyroidism, we have to identify this in every kid and start treatment, that sort of almost public health emergency, which is how Scott Gross, one of my colleagues, referred to it in a paper. And are we moving more towards, this is important information The families would like to know about the conditions their children have. And the sort of classic example of that is something like Fragile X. Um, syndrome, in which early identification does reduce diagnostic confusion. It allows families to know right away sort of what's going on, and it can allow for early intervention. It can allow for family planning and a whole range of things that many families would find valuable, but are not quite the same as, say, treating hypothyroidism uh, with a synthroid. So as we're moving more and more towards conditions like Fragile X and things where reasonable people might disagree about how much information they want to know and how much they want to understand about their child, especially when it may be uncertain kinds of information. Well, that's where the family's values and preferences really come into play. So this idea of what used to be called family-centered care, and now we talk about family professional partnerships, means that part of our job as professionals is to provide families with the range of information so they can make good decisions. And even beyond that, this sort of shared decision-making model that the American Academy of Pediatrics writes about in their technical support and guideline papers and says, we have to help families then figure out, well, what are your values? What are your preferences? And how does that match up with what the possibilities are? So how does this play out? What this means is, in, in the paper you mentioned, talk about a very specific example of, uh, I think the child was four or five years old, one of my patients, and he came to us with a specific genomic diagnosis. He'd seen two geneticists Three neurologists. They'd done all the work up. They'd done you know a whole genome sequence on the mother, the father, and the child. So they did the trio, and so the family had a very specific molecular diagnosis. When you asked the family what their issues were, it was that my child is not eating, and he doesn't behave well, and he's falling behind in school. So the, the knowledge of the molecular defect that led to his particular condition was not it didn't lead to a specific treatment so that the family came to me saying well we saw these doctors and they did all this stuff but now we need to know what to do so and this is one way to try to distinguish between a diagnostic odyssey and the word odyssey comes from of course from the greek myth of this long difficult journey where you go on this long you know uh, diagnostic odyssey to try to find out what is wrong with my child quote-unquote And I distinguish that between a therapeutic odyssey, which is what do I do to help my child? Whatever name you put on it, and whatever matters, what, what do I do to make his life better and to make him run and jump and play and learn and love just the way we want all of our kids to grow up? And what's interesting is families have really varied approaches to this. And there are, in my experience in doing this, some families who just having knowledge, just saying, here's the name. Oh, this is Angelman syndrome. Oh, this is a child with an absent corpus callosum. Just having that information, even though it didn't change treatment, that was very helpful. And those are families for whom solving the diagnostic odyssey is worthwhile. But there are other families who would say, and it's probably, well, in my experience, about two-thirds of families that say, I don't really care what you call it, Dr. Brasco. I just want to know what to do to help my child. And so part of that paper was saying that we as clinicians have an obligation to talk to families, to help them figure out, well, what is it that's really important to them? And so you can say something like, you know, some families are really eager to have a name and they're willing to do lots of blood tests and EEGs and all sorts of stuff because they want to know what to call this. And other families say, it's not really that important to me. I really want to know what do I need to help my child? Does he need physical therapy? Does he need a specific medicine? Does he need special education? And some families want both, but kind of where are you? And having that dialogue with families and trying to figure out what it is that's important to them leads to this idea of shared decision-making, family-professional partnerships, and it's the way to try to meet the families where they are in terms of their values and preferences. Um, And this should be standard of care, even if it's a simple thing like, you know, whether you're going to take antibiotics for an ear infection, we should always be talking to families about their values and preferences.
2: Thank you, Jeff, for that amazing reminder of the role that families have played in advancing newborn screening, and that they're really the consumers of the information that we generate through research in newborn screening. So you're a historian, um, so you look back, but you probably also look forward. So as you look forward, we know that research helps to advance newborn screening by sometimes increasing the number of conditions that might be a fit for early identification and intervention. Where do you think the next decade of research will take newborn screening?
0: That's a wonderful question, Amy. And I love trying to answer it. Although of course, predicting the future is always a little bit dangerous. Um, I think most of us in the field would say we're headed towards um, an interesting future because there will be more and more conditions that are relatively rare that have some therapeutic intervention and therefore would be candidates for newborn screening. Um, So that's exciting. And that's great. And we all, that's the part of science and advance that we love. At the same time, there are both systems level questions and what we might think of as sort of more individual family ethics questions. And I'll, I'll take the, that second one first because I think it's related to research in ethics, legal, um, and social issues. And that is to say that I think that we really should be pushing hard that anyone who's doing a pilot study for newborn screening, anyone who's doing research in this area should include key questions about ethics and family decision-making. So a classic example would be, is if you're doing newborn screening for an X-linked condition, well, should we be screening both boys and girls or just girls, or how should we work that out? Well, those are questions we probably should be asking families during the pilot stage so we can have some information to be able to inform policy decisions. Um, this also comes up if there are, you know, false positives or indeterminate results or things that are sort of late onset where you might identify a small number of children who have immediate needs, but a large number of children who will not have be affected until they're adults. How does that affect a family? Should we res- share results with them? What do they think? And by including an LC component in pilot studies, and there's a, a wonderful summary paper by Aaron Goldenberg who kind of pulls together all these questions, we can have the information we need to make good policy decisions. So that's sort of one half of where I see the future going, that we, we get into more and more rare conditions with less clear and straightforward approaches. And so this raises the issue of making sure we take, take into account families' views on the ethics and, and uh, social aspects of things. The second part of this, though, is at the systems level, and that's where I sort of put on my Title V hat and think about how newborn screening works. And I think all of your listeners will know that it's just not a matter of doing a blood spot and running a test and saying, "Uh aha, here's a treatment. There's a whole system involved where you have to make sure the test is being run appropriately. You have all the right quality assurance inside the lab. Then there's follow-up with the family to make sure that families and physicians and other providers are informed. And then there's the whole system of care to make sure that child gets what he or she needs. And I think we're far too aware of how even something like PKU, which has been screening for over 50 years, many families still don't have access to the and foods that they need. We have remarkable inequity in our healthcare system in the United States. So identifying a condition in the newborn period is insufficient for making sure that that child gets what he or she needs. And this has played out in different ways historically and has important implications for the future. On one hand, the universal nature of newborn screening has been a boon to equity. It has really improved things. Um, An example we talk about in one of our papers is to look at SCID, Severe Combined Immune Deficiency, and how in the years, this was looking at some data from California, in the years before newborn screening, most of the children at at a major um, bone marrow transplant center, most of the infants getting a transplant were white non-Hispanic infants. And in the two years after, implementing universal newborn screening. So every baby born in California is now being screened for Skid. The demographics changed pretty dramatically. And so at that point, about 80% of the babies getting a bone marrow transplant were Black or Hispanic or Asian. And what we thought was a genetic condition that was mostly in white Caucasians turned out to be an issue of access to early intervention and recognition of Skid as a disease. So I think that's a great example of how Newborn screening can improve equity and improve outcomes and make basically our healthcare system better. On the other hand, as we move into all these new conditions that are possible, there are strains on the system and there has to be improved capacity of the newborn screening system if we're going to continue to add new conditions. And really importantly, I would argue that there has to be some guaranteed access to treatment. If you identify a child with spinal muscular atrophy and say, yes, but the condition is going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to treat, and sorry, we're not going to pay for that, that would seem to me to be an appropriate thing to screen for. So thinking about the equity issues when we find the result, are we really going to have the resources as a community, as a state to provide what that family needs? And it's not just the cost of the medication. It's also, are there the clinicians who are trained to deal with it? And how does it, you know, are there enough clinical geneticists, neurologists, and other specialists to be able to deal with that? So I think that the other part of research over the next decade really has to be looking at the systems level issues and what it means when we add new conditions, what are the opportunity costs, and how do we make sure the system is robust enough to be able to address adding new conditions in a way that doesn't make equity worse? That is to say that some children may get access to treatment, but others don't, that would That would be awful.
1: Dr. Brasio, thank you for that and your emphasis on health equity and how important that is. And this actually leads to my next question as it relates to one of your recent publications titled Newborn Screening in Latin America, a Window on the Evolution of Health Policy. In this paper, you hypothesized that the history of newborn screening program could be used to understand the development of health policy. Could you please share some of your takeaway from this effort, and which comes first, newborn screening expansion or health policy, and are they intertwined, and are there a unique game changer from a historical perspective that result in significant change?
0: Glad to talk about this work, Key, and I have to say up front that this is based on very preliminary work, um, and really I'm hoping that a historian of Latin America picks this up, or, or of Asia, that would be fine too, to see really what the results would show. The basic idea is that if you imagine that newborn screening as a system, that is that a state has to figure out how to implement it across a huge population, was fairly well established in the 1960s and early 70s in Europe and and in the United States, especially. And then there are a number of countries over time who implement in one way or another a newborn screening program. That as a historian or sociologist or, or a political scientist, you could use the idea of population level newborn screening as kind of a sampling device to understand health policy. So if you look at Latin America, that was the particular example we chose. And there are 30 or so nations and there's 600 million people. And each of those nations has slightly different histories and backgrounds and populations. And so if you look at exactly when newborn screening starts at a population level again, and how it starts and why, that's one of the ways you can sort of use newborn screening as your constant and what each nation does is this sort of dependent variable to sort of understand a little bit about health policy. So that's what we did. And in our preliminary work, we found a couple of things that were interesting. One was that if you, again, you take as your as your, as your your key outcome, when did a nation have population level newborn screening for at least one condition? And you plot that over time. And you plot that compared to the infant mortality rate, what you find is that most countries did not start any newborn screening till the infant mortality rate was below about 30, 35 infant deaths per thousand live births. So let me put that in context to the United States, for example, Um, for listeners who don't know, our infant mortality rate in the United States, a hundred years ago was in the range of about 150 babies to 200 babies would die out of every thousand. So this was due to scarlet fever, pneumonia, infant diarrhea, Um, tuberculosis, a whole range of infectious diseases claim the lives of infants and young children. And any physician, any family, any person would be living with death of children and infants all the time. So you can imagine in that circumstance to say, oh, we're going to have a newborn screening program to look for a condition, even like PKU, one in 15,000, to try to identify it. They would say, what are you crazy? We're trying to deal with all this death around us all the time we don't have the wherewithal to pay attention to something like newborn screening. So it's not until the 1960s when newborn screening develops. And around that time is when the infant mortality rate in the United States dropped to about 30, 35 per thousand live births. So you could argue that a nation needs to sort of reach a certain level of overall good health among infants and young children before they have the wherewithal to start focusing on rare metabolic or genetic conditions. And again, so if you you plot when does newborn screening start versus infant mortality, we find this is kind of a theme throughout Latin America. And the reason why we think more research needs to be done on this is it's hard to know was this sort of an explicit policy decision. That is, you know, people in a health ministry said, oh, our infant mortality is now down to this. We now have the resources and the ability to start paying attention to hypothyroidism and PKU and sickle cell disease. That's one possibility. Another is that infant mortality rate is also a measure of economic development. That is to say, um, if you look at the GDP, the gross domestic product, if you look at a whole range of economic development indicators, it tends to correlate with infant mortality rate. So it could be that it's not really related to infant deaths per se, but just that as infant mortality rate drops below 30, that that means that the economic development of a nation is such that they could say, oh, we do have enough resources to invest in a newborn screening program. So that's one example from that paper of how you could use newborn screening as a tool, a sort of independent variable to understand health policy and how it works out in each country as the dependent variable. Another very curious thing we found in this research was that the International Atomic Energy Commission which was founded in the 1950s and 60s in the United States and then became an international group that was supposed to look for the peacetime good uses of radioactivity, right? So everyone was worried about, you know, the first atomic bomb and how dangerous this could be. And so the Atomic Energy Commission was set up to say, well, yeah, hold on, there are good uses of atomic energy and radioactivity. And one in particular was, was a test for hypothyroidism. And what we found in our initial research was that in a number of nations in Latin America, and this also happened in, in um, the Far East as well, the Atomic Energy Commission basically provided some resources to nations to say, hey, have you thought about screening for hypothyroidism? And this might be something you might want to do, and we can help set you up with the radioisotope, and we can provide some training and so on. And so whereas newborn development, newborn screening started in the United States with PKU it started with hypothyroidism in a number of nations. Now, this also could be because it's a fairly common condition. It's relatively easy to treat. It's a sort of a low tech solution. I mean, providing synthroid to a baby is a relatively easy thing to do compared to say, you know, a, a special diet. So there are probably other reasons. We think it would be worth exploring whether there was uh, an explicit sort of spur to starting newborn screening with, with hypothyroidism because of the activity of the, um, the Atomic Energy Commission. Just a curious finding and, and worth following through on, we think.
2: That's so interesting. One can even imagine what's going to happen with the COVID-19 pandemic and how that might influence health policy and newborn screening. So you've got a lot of, we're going to stay tuned for a lot of great papers and thoughts from your area. So, in thinking about your sort of day to day and your academic activities, Dr. Brosco, are you involved in training the next generation of pediatricians? And what do you tell them about newborn screening research? If you are,
0: yes, the answer is I am definitely involved in, in the training the next generation of pediatricians and and medical students more generally. So I'm I have a fair amount of. Um, teaching responsibility, not just sort of individual one-on-one teaching, but also thinking about our curriculum for both our our medical students at the University of Miami and our pediatric residents and our medicine pediatric residents at at Jackson Memorial Hospital and the health system there. Um, And here's here's the starry news. There are so many things we have to cover in our curriculum that newborn screening gets a short shrift. It really is not a major part of our overall education and newborn screening research, even less. Now in in our, my particular institution, because this is one of my interests, we do probably more than maybe in some others, but part of what's hard to remember when you're deep in the newborn screening world is that these conditions are relatively rare and are not the kinds of things that, that general medical students will see. And even pediatricians may not, the average pediatrician has in her practice, probably about 2000 or 3000 patients. And even if you had a group of three or four pediatricians, you're still talking about maybe 10,000 children. And given that most newborn screening conditions are fairly rare, you'll occasionally come across a child. And very often what you do in the United States is then refer to a referral center, to a center of excellence to manage most of the care. So at least at the pediatric residency level and the medical student level, we do relatively little about specific newborn screening practices. Now, on the other hand, I think that the ethics issues and the systems issues and the research issues that are embedded in newborn screening are interesting examples of the kinds of issues that you have in all kinds of research, particularly related to genetics and genomics. So we actually use this as one of our you know, examples in our curriculum. And I think that using newborn screening as an example of things, and PKU is sort of the classic, uh, makes sense. We also use PKU for, as a, an example of the importance of the sort of Genetics and environment debate, right? And so in PKU, we have an example where intellectual disability is, you know, fully determined by your genes, right? So if you have a the genetic defect for for um, phenylalanine, you're going to have PKU. But if you have an environmental intervention that's appropriate, that is, you have the, the appropriate foods and formula that are lacking phenylalanine, then you can have absolutely normal development. Um, so this is a good example of how genetics do not determine your outcome because there's always this into play, obviously, and listeners will know this, between the environment and genetics. So it's a, we often use cases of newborn screening or conditions related to newborn screening as examples of broader topics. And this does raise the issue of how best do we get information to clinicians. And so this is sort of one of those policy issues that I think is worth thinking about a little bit more. You know, for example, I could tell medical students and I do tell pediatric residents that if a child's born with a severe immune severe immune deficiency, excuse me, that you have to be careful about giving live vaccines. Well, for that medical student or resident to remember years later when they see that one child with skid, oh, I have to be careful about the MMR. That's asking a lot. That's just not how human brains work. So a systems-level solution that we, we put in place in Florida a few years ago, and this is part of how Title V and newborn screening work together, is we worked out a system such that when our state newborn screening program identified a child with skid, they would send that information to our state um, immunization registry, which is called Florida SHOTS. So they could put a warning into Florida shots. So when any community pediatrician or family medicine doctor or nurse practitioner entered into Florida shots to say, OK, I'm going to put these vaccines into the, the broader red vaccine registry, they would say, aha, this child's been identified as possibly having a severe combined immune deficiency. And you should you know, work closely with the, your expert clinicians to decide whether to give certain vaccines or not. So that would be an example of a systems level solution that doesn't require this sort of traditional education where you teach someone something and hope they remember it someday when they need it.
1: So thank you so much, Dr. Braschow, for sharing all these different opportunities that we could go beyond just um, sharing bunch when research for like the medical school community that we have to involve more system level approach. And, and that's a great example of looking at skin. Like you played a key role in advancing the efforts of... The newborn screening translational research network for, for many years. What role does NBSTRN play, and what role could NBSTRN play in your efforts to addressing the ethical, legal, social implication of newborn screening?
0: Thank you, Key, for that question. Um, I think NBSTRN uh, is one of my favorite organizations because what it does is say the only way we can solve problems is if we work together, and that if we work together, we're much more likely to have large impact on people that really need our help. And so the value of NBS-TRN is that it pulls together resources from across the country and puts them in a place where researchers and families and clinicians have access to them. So it's a wonderful spur to research. And so I think it's the kind of program that we want to make sure we're doing actually across the board in a lot of other parts of medicine. I think one of the coolest things about newborn screening that often gets lost is that in general, most of healthcare in the United States is kind of idiosyncratic and ad hoc. That is, you go to the doctor, and that doctor, he or she decides what you're going to get. And maybe there's some things sort of an interplay with an insurance company, but it's kind of the wild west of clinical practice. When you think about newborn screening programs, we have the Advisory Committee for Hereditary Conditions in the Newborn in Children. And this advisory committee, which is, as you all know, part of MCHB and HERSA, has a very uniform approach to trying to decide what goes on the recommended uniform screening panel or the RUSP. And a condition only gets added to the RUSP if there's clear evidence of benefit greater than harm. And this is a wonderful process. And it's kind of it's not quite unique, but there are relatively few examples of where we have a rational process that includes stakeholder input, including families, and then has a decision-making process that's transparent and says, yes, it makes sense from a health policy point of view for us to add this condition to the RUSP and therefore all states should be screening for it and we need to be providing appropriate follow-up. There is no way that this system can work without the research input. That is to say, if we don't have any data about different newborn screening conditions, then there's no way we can do an evidence review. There's no way you can make rational decisions about whether to add something to the RUSP. So that's where the MBS-TRN comes in. So by having a well-designed system that supports researchers and a whole variety of research, including ELSI, this allows us to get the answers that we need for the advisory committee to be able to make appropriate decisions. And also at the state level. So in my state in Florida, we have a newborn advisory committee that even if something makes it to the RUSP, then there's a timeline. So if something gets added to the RUSP, there's basically a timeline that says the state newborn screening committee, advisory committee must decide within a certain amount of time whether to add it in Florida. And again, the Florida advisory committee, just like any other state one, cannot make good decisions without good information. So absent research, and not just research about how you screen for something or how you treat it, but also how does it play out? And this comes back to some of our discussion before, that is, should we be revealing information to families about adult onset? Um, Should we be screening boys and girls for something that we're only gonna find pretty much in boys? Those kinds of questions, if we have research that tells us what what the best evidence is, then we're able to make the best policy decisions.
2: Dr. Brasco, as you think about your career as a clinician, Are there any patient or family stories that you'd like to share with our newborn screening audience?
0: So I think that the family stories I remember the best um, are the ones at many of the policy meetings I've had. And I will never forget when Florida was trying to decide about whether to add um, SMA to our newborn screening panel. And this uh, this is in Jacksonville, Florida. And it's in our public health laboratory building, which was built, it seems like hundreds of years ago, even though it was probably only 50 or 60 years ago. And it felt like kind of being in your old school cafeteria. That's kind of where the meeting was. And we're sitting around the table um, and we had, you know, tuna fish sandwiches for lunch. And as we're about to, we're thinking about whether SMA makes sense in Florida and the high cost and could Medicaid afford it and so on. There were two children there. One was a young boy um, who was identified fairly late with SMA. Um, And his mobility was primarily through his wheelchair. And he was clearly involved in what was going on, but there are limits to what he was able to do because of his mobility. And his sister, um, about a three-year-old, was running around and jumping up on the stage and doing cartwheels and stuff. And She had been identified earlier than her brother and had received treatment right from the beginning. And I think when when you see that kind of picture in your mind, you can see why the committee voted pretty much unanimously to say, yes, if we can identify a condition and we can guarantee that every child in our state will get the treatment they need, then this is pretty straightforward. We should be doing this. Um, And I think it's the presence of families in those kinds of situations that help us understand that this is, yes, it's arcane policy. And yes, it's difficult research. And and yes, there are thorny questions about how best to do things and pay for stuff and, and meet all our obligations. But when you see kids, it really helps you understand that this is exactly why we're doing what we're doing. Um, And it's really powerful.
1: Dr. Brasco, thank you so much for joining us today for our podcast and sharing your journey and the stories and how newborn screening research has really impacted many, many people in different communities and also hearing how you impacted them. We always like to end our podcast with our signature question, what it is, What does newborn screening research mean to you?
0: Newborn screening research means to me the incredible capacity of human imagination. The ability for us to take what seems like it's an insurmountable problem and imagine what we could do to fix it. And then organize, not just at the laboratory level and not just at the screening test level or the treatment level, but also to imagine how we could organize our society in a way that's more equitable And all those components are critical for making it work.
1: Wow, thank you so much for that definition. It gave me chills just hearing about it. Thank you so much for um, uh, joining us today, Dr. Brasco. We really enjoyed the work that you've done and the impact you've made.
0: Thank you so much, Key and Amy. This was great. I really, really enjoyed talking about this topic and uh, I appreciate the chance to be able to share some of my ideas.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of Newborn Screening Spotlight. If you like our podcast, please subscribe and share an episode with your colleagues, friends, and family. Get involved. Stay informed. Help us advance discoveries. Together, Together, let's let's increase increase the impact impact of newborn screening research research by listening to
1: your stories. stories.